You're listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast, discussing all aspects of precision and long-range rifle shooting. This episode is brought to you by Impact Dynamics, advanced training for the precision shooter. And now, over to your hosts. Well, hello and welcome to the Precision Shooting Podcast. My name is Rusty and with me tonight is Andrew. How are you going, Andrew? Very good, Rusty. And yourself? Yeah, very good. And uh, joining us uh, from the other side of the world, uh, Nick Vitablo. How are you, mate? I'm great. I will say good morning to you. <laughs> it is uh, it is good morning over there, and uh, it's about nine thirty p.m. here, and you're just having your first or second coffee. One of the ones. Uh, just the first. Just uh, the first. Get, I'm sure I'll get more lively as more coffee comes here. <laughs> Fantastic. And and so for those guys who are not familiar with uh, Nick, Nick's the president, and the owner of Invisti, um, and they. Well, I guess we're going to go through a lot of the stuff that they, the work that they do. Um, closely associated in many respects with applied ballistics. Is that right, Nick? Yes, that's correct. Excellent. And and um, is there other? Uh, what is Invisti about? I guess as a, as an overall question. Well, Invisti is a small company. We are uh, in our seventh year right now of business. So we were started back in the 2011 timeframe, and it was kind of a Funny story, but uh, you know, early on in, in my career, I worked for Lockheed Martin, a big defense contractor. And uh, my background wasn't in shooting originally. My background was actually in laser beam propagation through the atmosphere. So the, the funny part about that is, you know, Brian Litz, who is the owner of Applied Ballistics, and I were kind of on a collision path ever since we got out of school. Um, he, in his early career, spent much of his time. Uh, designing missiles to, you know, air-to-air missiles for aircraft. And uh, quite ironically, I was on the other side of that at Lockheed Martin. I was the guy that used laser beams to try to jam missiles. And so it was kind of funny. We were always on these uh, polar opposite sides for a long period of time there. Uh, And then eventually uh, in 2012, uh, Applied Ballistics and Envisity became partner companies. Um, And, you know, my background being in the laser world, we had done a lot of stuff with optical wind measurement using lasers and laser rangefinders and things like that. And uh, we decided a team with applied ballistics and we've been doing a lot of ballistics work, obviously, you know, for the past decade or so. So that's the short background there, but uh, that's how uh, we originally came into contact actually was through the applied ballistics uh, here. And I, and I think I, it started through some emails between Andrew and I, maybe he can kind of uh, talk to that a little bit. Yeah, it was uh, interesting actually because some of our listeners that have have uh, tuned in on previous podcasts, I well quite some time ago now, I I came across the Downrange Systems website, and uh, there was certainly talk that they were going to be producing a a Bluetooth module for the Vectronics PLRF rangefinders, which I I have a PLRF ten, and uh, you know I thought this. You know, could be something fairly handy. You know, mm, got absolutely. the got the Kestrel fifty seven hundred there, and I thought, well, it'd be pretty handy to be able to have them talk to each other. So, in a little bit of backwards and forwards, it became apparent that they were going to be marketed through Applied Ballistics. So, I end up emailing Doc Beach, um, and he obviously forwarded my email on to Nick, and uh, Nick replied with the bad news that it wasn't going to be happening quite so soon. <laughs> but um, that's. <laughs> That's how the uh, the contact started. So, um, yeah, that's here yeah, we are. Here we are. 
having a chat. So I guess that, that leads us on to rangefinders. And your name has come up on the podcast before, Nick, in, uh, in an episode we did just having a bit of a look through the Modern Advancements in Long Range Shooting Volume 2 book. And for, for people who have read that book or perhaps heard that podcast, Nick did the, uh, the rangefinder test on it, which was probably one of the highlights of that book, really. It was one of the meatiest parts of it, I thought. Yeah, look, for me, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of valuable information in that book. However, and I've always had an interest in in rangefinders, not anywhere near the the technical degree that that you do, Nick, <laughs> but um, more from an end user point of view. And um, I guess once I started using some rifles that were you know capable of really getting out, you know, sort of beyond two thousand yards, the the options became kind of limited, and and so that's sort of where I end up having to look out of the sort of realms of standard gun shop rangefinders. It sounds like you have a Plurf 15, is that correct? Uh, a 10, I've got the 10. 10, okay. Yeah, it's a great laser rangefinder. Yeah, it, it certainly is. I've been borrowing it for a little while and it's been a, <laughs> yeah. a fight to get it back, I guess. Yeah, I, I sort of recall years ago I saw an article, I think it was written by Sean Carlock uh, from Defensive Edge, and, and he had rigged up a, a doubler, like an optical doubler, you know, to give him yeah. more magnification. and. I toyed around with that idea and sort of a little while ago now ended up, you know, machining up a mount for it because I'm a fitter and turner by trade and machined up a mount for the rangefinder and I end up using a uh, a Vortex two times uh, optical doubler and it yeah. seems to work work a treat. I mean we um absolutely we use it quite regularly and yeah very happy. Oh, yeah. that's great. So Nick, that, do you want to give us a bit of an overview and maybe some details about that that test that you did for the um for that particular book? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so I'll start, it, you know, a little bit uh, in the history here of things. But um, so, you know, for a long period of time, uh, we've been talking about um, how lasers propagate through the atmosphere. And, and it's kind of funny because, our, like I said, my background comes from doing experiments in that world. So first jamming missiles, then doing some stuff with respect to being able to use lasers to communicate. But then eventually um, my team and I – invented a system that basically profiles the wind between a shooter and its target. So we got to be very familiar with how to uh, do a lot of the you know, detailed optical design and things like that. But uh, we actually had started building some of our own laser rangefinders back at Lockheed Martin. And uh, so when I, when, you know, we started the company back in 2011, we kind of started to want to get into that realm again uh, in the commercial marketplace as opposed to, you know, less military and less, less defense contractors kind of work. And uh, so we started to take a look at what kind of laser rangefinders were out there. And one of the most uh, disturbing things to me personally was that it was very difficult to characterize or compare any two laser rangefinders. If you go to the website for uh, one company versus the other, none of the specifications were the same. And so it was very, very difficult to determine, you know, from a consumer who has the better laser rangefinder. It doesn't you know, you can't compare apples to apples in that case. And so, you know, my mission was sort of like what Brian Litz had done on the ballistic coefficient side. And I think everybody's probably very familiar uh, that's listening to the work that Brian Litz has done with respect to his testing with the ballistic coefficients of all of the bullets. So sure. Brian, you know, has a setup where he goes and he tests all these bullets and he compares them and contrasts them on a single platform. And that way, every single bullet is, is measured the same exact way. And then you can make comparative decisions upon that. 
And my goal was really the same thing from a laser rangefinder perspective and to try to set a standard in place when no standard existed. And so try to come up with a good way of testing all of these laser rangefinders uh, on a uniform and consistent platform essentially. And so that, that was really the goal of all the experiments and all the testing that we did uh, with all of the laser rangefinders, just try to set in place a standard by which everyone else can then adhere to so that from a consumer level, you can make an educated decision on what kind of device that fits your budget and fits the range to which you want to shoot. Yeah, I think uh, laser rangefinders had been one of the hardest things to make a, a quality decision on because exactly what you're saying, all the, the data and the info had been different compared to each other. You know, each company was producing different information, um, which makes it very challenging. And, and so the, I guess the, the rule I certainly learned by was just throw lots of money at it and try your best to get the best you can. Ironically, that actually works pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I certainly would have. I mean, I, you know, I struggled to find a, a Vectronics rangefinder here in Australia. Mm. We just couldn't get them out of the US, being ITAR controlled. Um, end up buying one through New Zealand of all places. Um, but I, I just found, you know, I, I had Likers, I had Bushnells, you know, as all the, the standard, I guess. Uh, models you could find, and uh, none of them correlated at all with uh, with the with the specifications that they they stated. You know, there was no <laughs> there was no target size yeah. specified. There was no type of target. You know, they say reflective, but you know, what type of reflective? Um, and I, uh, to be honest, I was pretty sorely disappointed. Um, and as, like as Rusty said, there w- there was no definitive sort of resource you could go to until you know this uh, this book was published and you know the your article in there. That allows a very direct comparison. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that it's uh, been useful for you guys. And you know, that was the whole objective was to educate the consumer with the book, and hopefully, they will be able to make a good decision. But then also, you know, I, as a secondary effect, I really wanted to make sure that the manufacturers that were creating the laser rangefinders were all talking on the same, you know, specifications and things like that. And and actually. A lot of the companies now have started to use our data when trying to give a, give numbers out uh, in terms of performance. Uh, one of the you know companies that we're very involved with is uh, Six Hour, and I'm sure you're familiar with the Kilo 2400. We were very heavily involved with that project. Yeah. But with respect to that, uh, the numbers that are on the back of the box are the numbers that come out of our testing, and so that was uh, kind of nice that they've started to take a lot of our our numbers and then put them into their specifications and that was the secondary goal was to get the companies involved and to have them give uh, you know honest and fair numbers that were all comparative to other laser rangefinders on the market i guess nick are you able to take us through for, for a lot of people laser rangefinders are a bit of a sort of magic box where they press a button they get a number uh, <laughs> yeah you able to take us through how they actually go about working yeah absolutely um so all laser rangefinders are fundamentally the same uh, in that they measure the time of the time that it takes a, a pulse of light to travel to the target and then return from the target. And so speed of light, as you know, is constant, uh, relatively speaking here. And so uh, the way it works is that uh, 
each set of electronics uh, starts a timer and a pulse of light is emitted from the laser. That pulse of light then travels to the target, returns from the target, and the timer is then stopped. And, and fundamentally, it sounds very easy, uh, very simple, but there's a lot going on there. And um, so when you have the, the time that it took and you know the speed of light, you just divide by two, basically, and you get, you know, you multiply the speed of light times the time, divide by two, and you've got the actual distance to your target. And it's really you know, that simple from a conceptual standpoint. But there's a lot more going on for each laser rangefinder that most people don't know. And so there's, there's a couple of very important numbers uh, from a designer's standpoint of a laser rangefinder. And since we do some design, I can talk to that a little bit. But uh, when you uh, go to build a laser rangefinder as a designer, there's a tool that you use. It's called, it's called a link budget. Now, this link budget term comes out of the, the radar world. It you know, basically says how much energy do I have to put out and you know to, in order to make sure that I get enough signal back at the range at which I want to detect my target and that's very similar to how light works in fact you may even hear sometimes a um, a laser rangefinder called lidar system which is basically the same as a radar except with light and so you've got a lot of little different parameters that you can choose as a designer um, so what happens when the laser leaves the, the aperture, it immediately starts to diverge. And you can imagine the light goes out in sort of a conical fashion from the aperture, and it gets larger as it goes towards the target. And so that term is usually what's referred to in the specifications of a laser rangefinder as the beam divergence. And many times you'll see that the manufacturer specify that in terms of the number of milliradians that the beam is. And uh, so one easy way to compare it is one milliradian is equal to one meter at 1,000 meters. And so if you can imagine a, a, a one meter size beam at 1,000 meters is one milliradian. And, and that's, uh, that's pretty much where commercial laser rangefinders are, somewhere between one and two milliradians usually are those targets. So if you had to sort of mentally picture things, uh, you know, your, your beam is about that big at distance. So you can kind of get an idea of what you might be hitting around it. Uh, but once that you actually that beam hits that target, that light scatters off of the target in all different directions, you know, it just goes everywhere. And so uh, there's a tremendous amount of light that is lost when it hits that target. And you can imagine some targets are less reflective than others. Things like, um, Trees are very reflective, but rocks are not. And it has to do a lot with the surface roughness there, too. Um, the light may scatter in a bunch of different directions, and, and much of it does not come back towards you at all. And so, on the back again on the laser rangefinder side, and this is um, one of the things you have control over as well, is how much light you're collecting that's coming off of that target. So you can have a much larger receiver aperture. So the larger that the receiver aperture is, basically, you know, the, the more light you collect, the greater uh, signal that you get. And at the end of the day there, uh, you know, you've got a couple of key parameters that you, you can adjust. So on the laser rangefinder side, you, you can do things like put more power out. You can 
decrease the beam divergence, you can increase the receiver aperture. Uh, those are all little games that you can play to increase performance. But once that laser basically is in the atmosphere and is traveling to the target, you really don't have any control over that. So basically you have to do everything you can to try to maximize uh, the performance of the laser rangefinder um, at, at the electronics and the hardware level there. So the hard part though is it, and it all boils down to this link budget stuff. It gives you one number in the end. And that number is what's called the signal to noise ratio. And I talk a lot about this in, in some of the applied ballistic seminars and things like that, which I think we're gonna talk about a little bit later. But this signal to noise ratio number really tells you how much signal you are getting over the background noise. And, and noise terms are things like um, the sun and um, other things that might be giving off light um, or just the detector noise itself. And so you want to make sure that whenever you decide to design your system that you basically get enough signal returned from your target in order to make a measurement. Um, and the tool to use that or to design that is the link budget. And the term that you get out of it is the signal to noise ratio at the end. So I know that's a, a very technical description of things here uh, in terms of how they work. But that comes to be a key thing that I, I, I really want to educate consumers on uh, in order to be able to actually, you can, can, you can actually look at a laser rangefinder a lot of times and kind of get an understanding of some of its physical features. Um, so in general, things like a, a tighter beam divergence mean um, that you're putting more laser energy on target. And how you achieve a tighter beam divergence is that you increase the transmission aperture uh, to collimate the light better. Uh, in order to be able to receive more light, you will have a larger receiver aperture. Uh, and so, not to say that always bigger laser rangefinders are better, but when someone's designing maybe uh, a PLURF 10 or a PLURF 15 where it's, it's kind of large and boxy as compared to maybe a little handheld uh, unit, the reason for the larger apertures actually is the fact that you're, you're tighter collimating the beam, decreasing your beam divergence, putting more energy on target, and then also on the backside, collecting more energy. And so those are key things to look at from a consumer level uh, when you're looking at a laser rangefinder, you know, just, just physically looking at it. One thing, I guess, um, probably a lot of sort of probably more inexperienced or people that maybe haven't got a real interest in this field haven't got a lot of idea about is they have this idea of um, a laser whether it be a visible spectrum or you know infrared or whatever you know an invisible spectrum um, they have this idea that it's a dot you know because they shine it on a wall and they see it three feet from them they have this idea that that's what it's going to look like and be like 2,000 yards away from you know where they're they're shooting and I've sort of tried to explain to guys that it doesn't work like that you know you have got a very large beam right. if you like yeah and for me, uh, reading the article in the book that you uh, you wrote, again, a lot of that information is over my head. However, it it if you read it a couple of times, it, it makes more and more sense in what you're saying. You know, it's not it's a combination of power of the laser, um, you know, a collimation of the beam, and I guess I've had a, had a discussion with with guys a lot as as to far as is the price justified, and for for me. I, my hit ratio when shooting went through the roof after spending <laughs> the money because you know we'd regularly get you know we shoot on a lot of really open flat country and if you you don't know where where you're hitting you know I was using a Leica 
rangefinder for, for years, and uh, I think it was rated to twelve hundred yards, and it, there was no way in the world it was going anywhere near effectively <laughs> that far for me. Um, right. So, you know, the long and short of it, I guess, from a, from a consumer point of view, is I found it very useful to to actually spend the money and and get a decent quality rangefinder. Hmm. Yeah, willing, willing, yeah. really. And there's a couple reasons for that, and, and I can go into that. But, um, you know, a lot of times I try to make analogies that people can try to understand very easily. But on the laser rangefinder side, um, you know, I always, it's kind of fun when I do this at the seminars because I can watch everybody in the audience kind of make these motions. But uh, one of the things that laser rangefinders uh, do is like, and you can compare this to, you know, audio, is the signal is, you know, my voice, for instance, how well you can hear me sitting there at your computers. Um, and so, you know, in order to uh, hear me better, I could increase the loudness of my voice and you can hear that I got a lot louder as I just talked to you. So that's like one thing you can do. That's the equivalent to basically putting out more laser power. Um, so that's that's one thing that laser uh, rangefinder designers do. The, the second thing is I can cup my hands around my mouth. And you can imagine if, if I did that here, I would be directing the sound directly at you. And that would sort of make it louder. That increases the signal to noise ratio, um, the noise being the background noise that you guys are hearing. And then the third thing that you can do is increase your aperture. So if you cupped your hands around your ears, you would definitely hear more sound coming directly from me as I was speaking to you. And so that would be the equivalent of increasing your, your aperture on the receiver side. And so there's, there's almost always an, uh, an audio analogy to everything that we're doing here. Uh, with lasers, and, and as my voice, you know, propagates to you, um, it's it's very similar to how you know it's a pressure wave, but it's in this case it's a light wave that we're shining with the laser, and it's it's very very similar in nature here. So uh, I always try to make comparisons to audio because people you know, obviously see that and observe that on a daily basis, or actually they hear that and observe that on a daily basis. But um, so those are the kind of things. So what I'm getting from that is not only do you know more about laser rangefinders than us, you also know more about podcasting than us, which, which wouldn't be too hard, to be fair. I won't say that. <laughs> um, so, Nick, in the, in, in the book, you've established like a process to go through with the rangefinders to, to get a sort of standard measurement set from them. Yes, that's correct. Are you able to uh, – and, and you're saying now that, that's, that standard process is becoming more prevalent within the industry? Is, is uh, others – sort of you uh, getting their rangefinder tested through that process? Uh, yeah. And in fact, so, so one of the things, so, okay, I, I guess I'll describe to you the process by which yeah. this happens. Um, and this is kind of why I, I talked for a few minutes, although you may have fallen asleep during this period of time, but <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, on, on what happens and on what this link budget term is and such. Cause, cause once you, once the laser light leaves the rangefinder, you really have no control over um, your targets or anything like that, or how much light is being lost through the atmosphere, or even what the sun is doing that day. Um, and those are all things that very greatly affect the laser rangefinder. So uh, the one thing um, that we try to do is control every single one of those parameters and leave the laser rangefinder as the isolated piece that was unique in it. And so what we did is we created targets. Um, these targets are Basically, I'll call them animal size targets. Uh, one target is 0.75 meters by 0.75 meters, and it, we paint them with different paints. 
The other targets are very large uh, to, to simulate hitting a building or a tree or something like that. And the targets are, um, I think they are 2.5 meters by 2.5 meters. So they're relatively large. And, and so what we did is, um, you know, laser rangefinders are very, um, you know, they perform differently against targets of different size. So we tried to make something that was comparative to an animal and something comparative to a building. And so those are the, the, the two size targets we made, we made. So the first thing we did is we controlled the target size. That's a very important uh, thing when testing laser rangefinders. Um, the second thing that we controlled was the type of surface that the uh, targets were made out of. Now we use basic plywood uh, for these targets and it has a very rough surface and that's what's called a Lambertian surface. So when the light hits it, it uniformly scatters off of it and come, you know, some of it comes back to you, some of it disperses in all directions. So that's the second thing that we controlled. Uh, the third thing that we controlled was the actual reflectivity of the targets. And so this was like kind of a harder step. Um, the reflectivity is really a number of uh, when you strike a target, uh, how much of the light is absorbed by the target and how much is actually reflected back to you. And you can imagine, um, you know, in a visible spectrum, anything that's very dark or black has very low reflectivity. Anything that's very white has you know, much more high reflectivity. And so what we did is we, we painted these boards a certain color of paint and from there, we took them to a laboratory nearby here, and we used a special machine called a spectrophotometer. And the spectrophotometer gives you a measurement of what the reflectivity of the target is. And so we fixed the reflectivities at roughly 10, 20, and I think 40 or 50 percent, and made sure that we knew exactly what the reflectivity of those targets are. So that was the third thing that we controlled. And then lastly, and this is the most difficult one to control, is that we controlled the amount of sunlight that was present during the day. And the way that we did this was we do all of our testing here in, in the state of Ohio. And ironically, it's very cloudy in Ohio. Um, not quite so much as like the, the West Coast in the Seattle area. Uh, we don't get nearly as much rain, but because we have uh, a series of lakes just north of us, we get a lot of cloud cover um, throughout the summertime and, and definitely during the wintertime. And so uh, clouds are um, don't allow for direct sunlight to fall onto the targets, but they obviously illuminate the, you know, the, everything below very uniformly. And, and what you're doing there is you're controlling the amount of noise that we talked about. So this comes back to that signal to noise term that we talked earlier about the the noise is really the sun and so we controlled it to be roughly what's called 25,000 lux that's a measurement of how much lights out there during the day um, and that's typical on a cloudy day um, on a bright sunny day you will receive somewhere between a hundred thousand or maybe a hundred and ten thousand lux um, and that's just a lot more light falling on the target so you can imagine that's four times more noise than what we measured here so what we tried to do is we established all of those parameters so that everything was uniform. Target size, target reflectivity, um, the actual uh, solar illumination, and then uh, you know, the actual surface of the boards as well. So we controlled everything in the experiment. 
And that's the way we really wanted to try to get many of the manufacturers to do it as well. And that, that, that is what they've now sort of established as the standards. And they've started to publish those numbers too, which is, which is really good. So trying to take a very uniform and scientific approach to everything that we're doing. Um, just on, you were talking about obviously making sure you've got you know uniform light conditions as one of the, the important you know test parameters. Um, this may be a stupid question, but would you you know be able to get more uniform results by doing it at night? Yes, you would. In fact, uh, one of the things that you would get better performance at night because what you would be uh, essentially making happen is that you would get less noise. So the sun being a noise term in there, um, it actually, you know, you'd get better performance. So you can expect um, that your signal to noise ratio would go up probably by about a factor of maybe, uh, maybe up to like four or five times better at night. So you're going to definitely see increased performance of the laser rangefinders at night. I mean, besides the the physical of not being able to see your targets, um, <laughs> it's a slight downside. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd considered this. I thought, you know, if you had a sufficiently rigid test rig, hmm. you could certainly do it. Um, yeah, just it was a point that it, I was thinking about just the other day because uh, Greg, who's normally on our podcast as well, he's just ordered a uh, a Silencer Co rangefinder uh, specifically for nighttime shooting using his thermal scope. Um, and I think he had asked me, you know, is it going to be better or worse at night? And I said, I said to him, well, I thought it would be better. Certainly. It will be. Mm. So he'd be happy to hear that. Yeah, and, and I think that, uh, you know, that's a, a large use case that we're looking at now is um, a lot of people are doing a lot of hunting at night, and so being able to align and fix a laser rangefinder to some other device like a thermal or just your rifle scope uh, for shooting at night is uh, becoming very popular, sort of like the radius. Um, you know, we've had a lot of involvement on the military side, like the Raptor and things like that. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that was, uh, I, I believe it's, it's a Raptor on the front cover of the uh, the book we're talking about. But, yes. um, yeah, Greg, uh, he is, uh, well, unfortunately, couldn't be here tonight. I think he's choking people out at jiu-jitsu training. But um, <laughs> he, he uh, if we can get you back at some stage to, to go into... Uh, the th- sort of thermal oh, yeah. side of things. He uh, he is well. He shoots weekly, um, doing a lot of pest control shooting, and uh, well, I've been out with him once, and it was certainly an eye opener. So, I think um, yeah, different way of doing it. Yeah, well, we do a lot of yeah. night shooting here in Australia. It's very popular way of shooting, but yeah, really traditionally, common. it's it's under a, a, a bright spotlight. Um, but after using a thermal at night. That's the, uh, the way to go. <laughs> Absolutely. That's probably, yeah, that's probably awesome. So let me ask you a question. Um, so what do you usually use as your um, targets for what you're lazing? So like you, you talked a lot about your, your, um, your tra- you know, topography there is very flat and it's, uh, you know, you're shooting, I imagine, grasses and things like that that you're trying to laze. Is that correct? It, look, it really depends. Um, I do a lot of long-range shooting on steel, and we, you know, we're using steel targets from sort of I don't know, maybe four inches in diameter through to IPSC torso-sized targets. Um, but on the hunting side of it, uh, you know, we've got you know, we've got a lot of larger animals. You've got a lot of deer species here, so you know, you're looking at fairly large animals, generally speaking. Um, 
Yeah, I think I think when we've been trying to trying to push them, Nick, it's certainly been trees have been probably the thing we go to the that right. for me the most. Um, but we uh, we we do shoot a lot of flatland, but um, we do have some sort of fairly significant hills and sort of uh, you know mountain systems and such. So yeah, we we I guess we we do get a, a big mix of what we do uh, range against um, when we don't sort of being able to ping the actual animal on the fur itself. Right. Well, and so that's actually some good news because one of the, the things I wanted to bring up is that um, animal fur. Now, the university for which we did the testing at would not let us test real fur. Because yeah, we read that. Yeah. I could not claim that no animals were hurt in the making of <laughs> of the product there. But <laughs> the uh, faux fur, it you know, uh, roughly animal furs are the same, is uh, roughly 50% reflective, which is really good. Um, the same with leaves on trees, like green leaves on trees are very reflective. They're like 50%. Uh, so those are all good targets to try to laze off of. Uh, things like tree bark and rocks are not reflective at all. And, and that would probably go with what you'd experience as well in real life. But um, yeah, if you've got the opportunity to actually laze the animal or laze a tree or a bush nearby, uh, those are definitely things that are more highly reflective and are more likely to give you a return from the target than anything else around it. Yeah, one thing I, I sort of found and what prompted me to uh, go down the line of uh, using a, an optical doubler on, on my rangefinder was, um, I, th- I, I believe the PLR of 10 is a, a six power uh, magnification. Mm-hmm. And you know we were ranging. You know my goal. I haven't done it yet. Is I want to sh- I want to hit a rabbit at a mile. Um, you, know, you, you struggle to see it at six power, let alone you know right. get a, get a clear range off it. Um, so that sort of prompted me in that regard. That uh, you know once you sort of start to extend the range, I wanted to be sure I was actually ranging the target and not something around it. That makes yeah, that makes great sense and I think that's been one of the limitations of a lot of handheld laser rangefinders is the magnification level of them like you said it's very hard to see the targets at times yeah I mean I had a, had a look the other week we uh, we had a shoot uh, on down here and, and a guy brought along a um, Terrapin uh, yeah. and although it, it, it seemed impressive the ranges he could uh, you know get a reading at I, I just did not like the, the reticle in there like big quite a coarse circle and you're trying to range something small at 2000 plus meters it was uh, it it didn't overly impress me but i guess for the money it's uh, probably quite a good unit but um hmm. right and, that, and that's actually you know one of the things it's uh they, they try to give you an idea how large the beam is usually with that circle and that's actually pretty representative of what you're seeing like where the laser's at out in space and it's usually fairly large so that's the reason for those circles in there yeah, it makes a lot of sense one of the things I, I as andrew said for the money it's pretty good i think that i really liked about about the way you reported the data you obtained was you did like a dot was it a dollar per per meter dollar meter dollar per meter, dollar right. per meter. yeah <laughs> and so yeah this is why it comes back to like you know you get what you pay for kind of thing but um you know the one thing that people usually don't understand too well is that uh, there's different types of laser rangefinders. There are different wavelengths of light that some of the laser rangefinders are working at. Um, a lot of the PLRF devices work at a wavelength that's safe for, safer for your eyes. 
uh, and that's at like 1550 nanometers, whereas a lot of the, the lower end or lower cost uh, laser range finders work at usually at 900 or 905 nanometers. Uh, and the reason for that is because the parts are cheaper at 905 than they are at 1550, and they are not export controlled at all. But the the Plurfs and the Raptors and uh, you know maybe some of like the Steiners and such have 1550 nanometer laser range finders and the lasers inside. And so what happens is is you can actually put out you know from an eye safety perspective, you can put out much 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 more power at 1550 so you can have a much greater signal that you're putting out and so the performance is of that laser rangefinder is much better than some of the ones at 905 Uh, you're kind of governed by how much you can how much light you can put out at 905 in order to keep it still eye safe and that's one of the the things that kind of limits the performance of the lower end laser rangefinders is actually how much light they can put out Um, you wouldn't want to blind anybody obviously and or yourself by accidentally lasing something nearby and and seeing a return on that uh, and potentially blinding yourself so that those are the kind of things that uh, you know go into that but but yeah so like when you do a price per meter comparison you can really see that there's a uh, you know there's two brackets of pricing essentially there's there's all these you know devices that operate at 905 nanometers and then there's this huge price jump for things that now work at 1550 uh, so you you do get what you pay for when you're when you say that or when i say that it's really what's happening is you're making the price jump from a 905 nanometer laser range finder to a 1550 and so the plurfs are you know mostly at 1550 the terrapin was the exception it operated at 905 and that's the price jump you're paying for there um on the on the commercial side of things where you can get uh, you know a lot of variance there um you really want to take a look at uh, you know, if you don't have the book, obviously feel free to email me or go to the Embisty website and, and email me through the support page. I'd be happy to guide anybody through through what might be the most economical choice. But what we really found, though, is that, you know, if a laser range finder says that it's good to maybe 1,200 yards or meters, it's really about half of that. Um, I would take, you know, half of that on an animal, I'll say. Um, so, you know, generally speaking... Uh, that's the performance of a lot of the commercial laser rangefinders that operate at 905. And so when you've got more than a dozen laser rangefinders that are anywhere from maybe three or $400 to $800, you really need to take a hard look at uh, the specifications and you know maybe take a look at some of the data or email me directly. And I'd be happy to give some advice on what might be the best device to purchase for your money. Yeah, that that's certainly that sounds fantastic. What I really got out of um, the the chapter you wrote in that book was it was very clear and very easy to understand the results you you got. As I said, there's a lot of technical information, but I've certainly directed a lot of newer guys that are in the market for this mm. equipment, and I said, okay, it's quite it's quite simple. You work out how far do you need to go, <laughs> and that automatically cuts out a number you know if you want to go longer and then you go how much money have you got and it's really quick and easy to (laughs) to basically look down the column and go okay i'm limited to these two or three and away we go yeah it it sort of it's i guess a resource that would have been really handy years ago (laughs) um but yeah Yeah. i mean for it just saves you know having that confusion of okay is it what's it going to do i mean uh, that standardized testing that you've gone down that line i think is it's invaluable 
And that's why I put those two graphs at the back of the chapter, by the way. I wanted you to read everything first before <laughs> you actually got to the interesting stuff. Well, I, I can honestly say, Nick, that was the, the first chapter I read and quite possibly the only chapter I've read in its entirety <laughs> from like start to finish several times. Um, I mean, the book is a valuable resource, and I'd certainly encourage anyone to buy the book. But uh, sounds like you're backpedaling there, Andrew. No, no, like don't, I've read the book. I have read it from start to finish. But yeah. it's that uh, chapter I found to be most personally interesting. Anyway, mm. Mm. it's um, and so Nick is is the intention to keep that data updated? Is to do that yes. process again soon, or not soon, but in time? Yeah, we're we're uh, currently you know there haven't been that many new laser rangefinders that have come out since then. Um, we do plan on maybe every couple of years performing this test. And like I said, uh, what's nice here in Ohio is we have access to a, a range, and you can kind of see some pictures in the book where it's it's literally five kilometers of straight road that we can go out and test on. And so we do this pretty often. Um, and we actually are out there about once a month doing a lot of other testing uh, that we do on optical wind measurement actually. So next time, you know, we, we've got a new batch of laser rangefinders, it's very easy for us to go out there and, and keep this data up to date. So that's our plan to do that. And you know, similar to how Brian publishes a lot of the ballistic coefficients in a book or something like that, or even online or in the applications, we'll probably start to maintain this kind of information on the website and things like that and, and also publish it in the books as well. Yeah, excellent. Uh, just just a quick one, Nick. I, I think it may well have come out uh, since the the article was released. But the Sig Sauer is it the twenty two hundred? Is there is a twenty two hundred yeah. and there is a twenty four hundred? Yes. Yeah, um, the twenty two hundred. I don't think was in the book, was it? No, that one had not come out yet. Yeah. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Because we we're starting to see these, you know, probably some time after the US market, but we're certainly starting to see these models coming through now here. Well, that, that actually yeah, brings brings us into a point, doesn't it, Nick, that you um you had a bit of a hand with that 2400. Yeah, in fact, uh, I feel like the 2400 is my baby. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot to do with that product. Uh, so, you know, uh, the applications on the phones, um, my team did that, um, that work, and then a lot of the work that was embedded um, on the software and such is also in the Kilo 2400 there. So yeah, that, that, I feel like that one's my baby. But uh, but the the 2200 is a continuation of the 2000. Basically, uh, the the 2400 has several upgrades to it. There's a, a glass aspheric lens on the transmitter, um, increased laser performance in terms of how much energy is being put out, and some increased transmission uh, through the optics on the receiver side. And so that's that's the reason, one of the reasons why the, the Kilo twenty four hundred is a little bit more expensive, as well as how well you, know, you align it internally. But uh, the twenty two hundred took some of those lessons learned from the twenty four hundred and applied them to the Kilo two thousand. That's kind of why the number twenty two hundred happened too. Is that uh, some of the lessons learned and some of the things like the laser range find or the laser output, I believe, is higher on the. 2200 as compared to the 2000 and that's the reason for the actual increase in performance there between the 2000 and the 2200 and the reticles uh, inside of the uh, 2200 are similar to what's in the 2400 um, the actual OLED display that's inside and so that's the reason for uh, the you know the new product as compared to the 2000s 
Yeah, look, I I think I've had a look at a 2000 only very briefly, but um, certainly, well, it seems on reviews that we're seeing here and, and user, I guess, feedback, um, they're a very good option for, for, for the guys, you know, for the shooting applications that actually want a more reliable, effective rangefinder for sort of the more extended range shooting we're starting to see being popular here, at least. Rather than spending, you know, or well, here the uh, the Vectronics, I think cost me just over five thousand dollars Australian. So yeah, and the the Kilo two thousands you can get for, you know, I think three ninety nine now even, and and the twenty two hundreds for maybe four or five hundred dollars. It's not that much. Um, so for you know that's actually what the results showed too is that you know from a price per meter perspective, the the Kilo line of laser rangefinders from Sig Sauer as well as the, the Leica products, were two of the best products for their price. And so uh, you really can't go wrong with, I think, either one of those devices, either the Leica or the Kilos. Um, and so those are both very good products. Um, and I think you know the Kilos have really started to set the standard. And I think now a lot of companies in the industry are trying to play catch up to them at the moment. I guess from a uh, consumer's point of view, that's that can only be a good thing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think after they've shown that the kilos are selling off the you know, store shelves as fast as they can put them up there usually. And so most companies now are trying to increase performance. And what's interesting, by the way, is, you know, and this is kind of an aside, but a lot of companies put different focus on uh, different qualities of laser rangefinder. For instance, uh, the companies uh, coming, you know, the German companies tend to put more focus on the quality of the optics, whereas you know some of the other companies put more focus on rangefinder performance. So, you know, the Americans seem to want more uh, range performance out of the laser rangefinders, whereas you know, the Germans and European countries tend to want uh, better glass. And so you know, there's some trade-offs there, and so that's why maybe you'll see some of the European manufactured. Uh, devices have better quality optics, but lesser range performance because they don't need that range performance when shooting in Europe, um, as opposed to on the American side, some of the companies that are doing the work over here, uh, you'll see a greater focus on uh, you know, the actual laser rangefinder performance. So that's just an aside, but that's, that's some of the reasoning behind things. But I think everybody now is pushing towards um, greater range performance since the kilos came out. Yeah. yeah, I think sort of certainly here, um, you know, geographically, sort of, you know, our to, you know, topography here is probably more similar to, you know, a lot of the areas in the United States and than you know those close-in areas of Europe. So, I think the trends here would probably more, you know, what the markets, you know, demanding would probably be closer to the US than than Europe. Um, I guess the the Sig Sauer, well, you know, not just the rangefinders, but also their their rifle scopes are. They're quite new here. I mean, you've probably had them for a lot longer there, but uh, certainly, you know, within the last certainly eight to ten months, I guess there's just been a a sort of a, a flurry of interest in them because people are getting them and finding that they are actually a world better than their Bushnell or you know Leopold rangefinder, for example. Yeah. Right. And that that twenty four hundred, Nick. So you, obviously, it's your baby. You had a hand with it. For those listening who are not familiar with it, um, can you tell us the the difference between that and say the the two thousand or the twenty two hundred? Sure. Um, so the twenty four hundred has uh, the applied ballistic software built into it. It is a 
it's a full suite of sensors in it too. So inside of the Kilo 2400, you have a, a temperature sensor, a pressure sensor, a humidity sensor. Um, you've got an inclinometer to measure your incline, uh, and you have a compass inside as well. And so uh, with your phone, you go ahead and you set up up to four different weapon profiles that you know you set up for your bullet um, and your gun, and it has all of Brian's custom drag curves and things like that in there. You pre-program that you know on your phone. You then connect it over Bluetooth to the Kilo 2400, and you upload that information into there. And then you select it on the Kilo 2400 which profile you'd like to use. And then as soon as you lay the target, you've got the range to target as well as uh, what your elevation and windage holds are. And, and you've got a couple different ways. You can either enter the, the wind in manually or it comes with a little weather flow meter that you can put into your phone and take a wind speed measurement like that, similar to how you do it with a Kestrel. Um, and so that's that's the you know the software differences between the 2400 and the, and the 2000 and 2200s. Um, there are some like hardware differences, like I said. Um, the There is a tighter beam on the 2400s, there's a greater transmission and we're putting out more energy on the 2400s. And there's a greater focus on the alignment of the actual 2400s at the factory. And so uh, with greater or better alignment, you can actually get more light onto the detector. When you get more light on the detector, you've got an increase in signal. So um, that's the reason why uh, you spend a lot more man hours actually tweak, hand tweaking that alignment on the Kilo 2400s. And so that's kind of why it's a top of the line product. But those are the the fundamental differences between them all. Just with the uh, with the twenty four hundred, Nick, um, can that be used? Well, obviously, it has Bluetooth capabilities. Um, can that link directly with the fifty seven hundred Kestrel and, and get your your wind data directly from that? I don't want to spill too many beans here, but um, <laughs> uh, let's just say that something like that's in the works. So we'll say that How's that. Yep, that's a good answer. I like it, <laughs> and 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 I guess uh, you know that was my next my next point. My next question was the uh, the fifty seven hundred. Did you have something to do with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, similar situation. Now the Nelson Kellerman folks that actually produce device has a they have a great software team that works there. But I do a lot of the ballistics work, so you know they've got a whole line of different products on the Kestrel there, and they do a lot of the user interface and things like that. But Obviously, when it comes to the ballistics, uh, our team did all the software on the ballistics uh, Kestrel 5700. Um, our team also did the uh, the Kestrel Link ballistics applications that you may use on your phone. So, once again, if you have any application problems with those, you know, contact us. We'd be happy to help you through that stuff. So, um, yeah. In fact, if you go to the about screen, you kind of see some of that stuff in there. But um, that we did a lot of that work. But uh, yeah. So those are the things that we've done. We've done the, the Kestrel 5700, the Sig Kilo. Uh, 2400. Um, if you guys are familiar at all with like the Raptors on the military side, um, we get involved with a lot of that kind of stuff too. And then, uh, like commercially, we do a lot of products through Applied Ballistics as well. Um, the mobile applications, we recently took those over, uh, and we are now doing a lot of work on that side. We're actually putting the whole on Brian's whole uh, database of bullets is going to be online this summer. Uh, so as soon as Brian tests the bullet at the lab, for instance, it's going to be live updated on the, the website, and then it'll push to all the phones like that afternoon. So it's going to be really, really fast to get new bullets in the library. Those are all things that we're working on right now. Yeah, that's fantastic. Obviously, a uh, pretty busy man. You got a lot going on. Yeah, that's uh, a <laughs> that's a good thing though. I'd rather be busy than bored. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. 
and uh, and I guess one of the other things that we see your uh, you pop up in is the uh, applied ballistic seminars. Yes, which, which, uh, those uh, are a lot of fun. Yeah, can you tell us a bit about them and uh, and also let us know when you're coming to Australia for them? <laughs> Actually, we've had a lot of discussions internally about coming down there. Uh, I, I want to personally come, and I think my girlfriend wants to come more than I do. So uh, <laughs> we can definitely help with that. Yeah, she's a big proponent of uh, coming down to Australia, but. Uh, the, the seminars are a two-day seminar, and uh, we start with uh, some of the fundamentals of trajectory analysis, what things matter, things like um, you know what a ballistic coefficient is, how you model the drag for a bullet. Um, we get into some more advanced topics like uh, spin stability and uh, Coriolis effects and things of that nature, or even you know how does the wind influence a bullet in flight. And, and Brian spends a, a couple of you know, probably you know a couple of days on that stuff, and and it's really, really well received. Uh, one of the other uh, great features of the seminar is that there's a lot of guest speakers that come, and so I'm one of the guest speakers uh, usually that's there and present all the time. Uh, Emil Praslik, he's a, a former Army marksmanship unit um, gentleman who's been you know probably considered one of the best wind callers in the world for many years and, and he's there and he gives some guest talks very regularly and we get a lot of different guys from industry um, Ian Clem from Vortex Optics is usually there and gives him some information on how rifle scopes actually operate internally and so it's a really great seminar we get a lot of great feedback on um, you know from the guys that attend and it's a very educational couple of days and I think one of the things that people really like is that we choose very scenic places we were out in uh, Snowbird, Utah a couple of weeks ago and it was a very nice place at a nice resort and in the evenings we make ourselves available to all of the attendees and so there's little breakout sessions at night um, where we actually go and uh, you know talk to everybody and, and anybody can ask any questions that they didn't get answered during the day and then you know we've got uh, Doc Beach there as well and he does a lot of things to help guys set all the applications up on their phones and things of that nature so We've got a lot of, uh, you know, support there at the uh, activities and at each seminar. And so I think it's been really well received so far. Uh, we we did four of them last year, and I think that was probably about the, the most we'll do in a year. We, we reduced it to two this year just because we're so busy. But usually we have about 100 attendees, and um, we try to make it as personal as possible. Yeah, look, I think uh, there's, you know, really growing interest in in actually learning this kind of information here. So, well, I, I think you would uh, be very well received if you come and do a seminar over here. Mm, absolutely. Maybe you guys could help us get uh, 100 attendees, then we'll uh, make it down there. <laughs> Done. <laughs> <laughs> We're all over it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Nick, what does the future hold for you? Is there some stuff you're working on that you're able to let us know about? Yeah. Uh, well, I can't speak specifically to things, but I will tell you that um, we're doing a lot of work in the precision rifle shooting area. So there's a lot of tools that will be coming out this summer, um, at least here. They'll probably trickle their way there uh, shortly thereafter um, that are really geared towards uh, quick target engagements, multiple target engagements, uh, weapon-mounted things um, so that you can view your holds maybe on the weapon, uh, things of that nature. Those are the kind of things that we're working on now. And um, what's interesting, we, we see a lot of the, uh, the PRS guys uh, making large strides towards using technology and you know really sort of 
they're a very well educated ballistically um, consumer, and so we do you know focus a lot on what what they're doing there, um, and so that's that's one of the things you'll see. Um, and then the other thing that we focus a lot on, and, and applied ballistics is really a leader in this area, is uh, the extreme long range shooting. Shooting, um, you know, Brian and, and Mitch and those guys are trying to get out, you know, win the two mile king of two mile competition again and um you know we're pushing the the boundaries of how far you can actually put those bullets out there accurately and those guys are, are really leading the way so we're, we're making a lot of strides to uh, increase the performance of the ballistics capabilities in terms of being able to uh, you know predict the bullet trajectory at ridiculous ranges like that so those are the two things that we've really got a lot of focus on lately pretty much our two favorite things i think so uh, certainly hit the nail yeah. on the head with them Exactly. So yeah, those are the things we're up to. You'll see some new products out this summer, and uh, we're pretty excited about them. And then once they once they come out, we can talk about them. But uh, till then, I think you guys will uh, <laughs> have to wait. We can do another podcast at that point. No, it's wonderful to have you on. It certainly has those those new products and, and bits and pieces that you've alluded to come on board. Love to get an update on uh, on where they're up to. And um, yeah, thank you very much for your time. Uh, well, this morning for you, and uh, <laughs> hope you enjoy the rest of your day. And I think we're gonna. Uh, uh, close up here and head to bed. Head to bed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Rusty. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you today. No, thank you very much. Easy done, right? Thanks very much, Nick. Cheers. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast. To continue the discussion, check out our Facebook page. And for more information, head to our website, www.precisionshootingpodcast.com.au. This episode was brought to you by Impact Dynamics, advanced training for the precision shooter.